Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, a victim of emotional and physical abuse at the hands of his own mother, Tim Harvey, decided to keep the train of abuse going by persistently terrorizing his wife, Kathy Ann. Having had enough and fearing for her very life, Kathy Ann lured Tim outside, where she attempted to kill him by literally stabbing him in the back. Unaware of Greg Vivian's presence and his own desire to kill her husband, Kathy Ann was taken by surprise when Greg Vivian used her like a living marionette to strike what they both believed to be the fatal blow that would end their tormentor's life. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yardwork, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Laura glanced down at her watch and then looked across the table at Joe. I didn't realize it was getting so late. I still have a lot of work to do on my books before my accountant arrives in the morning. I'm sorry, Joe. I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm going to have to leave. Thank you so much for the dinner invitation. I've had a lovely time, Laura said, rising from her chair. She turned to Jared. It was so nice meeting you. Perhaps we'll see each other again before you leave. I'd rather not have you leave alone, Laura. Jared can follow you and make sure you get home all right, Joe said. Laura saw him glance across the table at Jared and smile. After all, Jared is a law officer. Jared looked surprised and confused for an instant, but recovered quickly. Sure, Jared replied, rising from his chair. Laura felt her face beginning to blush. No, no, that's not necessary. I am an adult, Joe. I'm sure I can manage on my own, but thank you, Joe, for your concern, and thank you, Jared, for your offer. Both men smiled and nodded. Why don't I walk you to the door, Laura, Anne suggested, as she glanced quickly at Joe and then rose from her chair and joined Laura. I'll be right back. Laura, is everything all right? Anne asked quietly as the two women reached the coat rack by the large door. What was that all about at the table, Anne? I'm sure Joe was just being overly cautious because of everything that's happened. I don't know, Anne. I got the distinct feeling that Joe was trying to do a little matchmaking, Laura replied doubtfully. I found it to be a bit of an embarrassing situation. Oh, Laura, I don't think Joe meant to embarrass you. I think he's just concerned. Laura pulled on her coat. You're probably right. Thanks for talking me into coming in. I had a good time. You were right. It was good for me to get out. Anne smiled. 
I'm glad. If you come into town tomorrow, Anne, why don't you stop by the boutique and we'll talk? I'll try, Anne said with a smile. Safe home. You too, Laura replied. The large door of the inn closed with a heavy thud behind Laura. She walked to her minivan, thinking about Joe's little maneuver just a few minutes before. Why did he do that? She asked herself as she absentmindedly tucked her wool scarf inside the lapels of her coat. It had gotten colder in the few hours since she'd arrived. Then she remembered what Sally had said earlier about the family Joe and his men had found murdered up at Mirror Lake. She hadn't thought about that. She had just assumed Joe's reason for trying to get Jared to follow her home was just a little bit of matchmaking. But now she gave it more thought. Someone had killed five people, and no one knew who had done it. Laura could feel a shiver run down her spine. She quickly glanced around the parking lot and realized that despite the large number of parked cars, she was the only person in the lot. She quickly fished for her keys, unlocked her minivan, and slipped behind the wheel. She immediately locked her door, put the key into the ignition, and started the engine. Feeling safer now, she realized that Anne was right. Joe's actions a few minutes before had probably been simply his attempt at making sure she got home safely. She let the car run for a few minutes and then pulled out of the parking lot. For a while tonight, she felt more like her old self, laughing and enjoying the company of her friends. She was actually having a good time. Then she had let her father's business, no, now it was her business, overshadow the evening. In a manner of speaking, it was like she started driving with the brakes on. But she had been doing that a lot over the last two years since his death, putting the brakes on, making excuses not to go out, keeping to herself. She knew deep down that it wasn't really the business that she was clinging to, but the fact that business was the only thing she had left of her father. As she drove, she thought about Joe's friend, Jared. She barely knew him. But there was something about him that made her feel that she had always known him. Laura took her foot off the gas and applied pressure to the brakes, slowing the minivan as she turned onto Mepham Road on the outskirts of town. There were four houses at the beginning of the road. Each house was separated from the next by a large yard, ranging in size from one to five acres. The first and the smallest of the houses sat in the middle of one acre, and belonged to Miriam Moore, a widow who lived alone. The second house, an A-frame, belonged to Jay and Fran Andrews, a very cozy little couple from Connecticut who only used the house during hunting and ski season. They had been married for years, but were still head over heels in love with each other. When you saw one, you saw the other. They were inseparable. They frequented her shop whenever they came up. She thought of them as the Connecticut couple. Jan and Linda Waters and their three children lived in the third house, a new large ranch style on four sprawling acres that they'd built when Laura had gone off to college eight years ago. The fourth house, her house, sat on the largest piece of property. The farmhouse was where she'd grown up. Her father had left it to her when he had died. Metham Road continued on past her house, through the hollows, and into the National Forest. There were only three other houses between her house and the National Forest. The next house was at least a mile down the road. 
a dark-colored pickup was parked on the road between the widow's house and the Connecticut couple's house. Laura thought it was odd. She didn't think the truck belonged to the Connecticut couple because they usually didn't arrive until hunting season began. It could have been someone visiting the widow, but why would they park there? The lights had been on in Miriam's house as she drove past, so Miriam must still be up. She didn't want to stop and knock on the door. What if the visitor was trying to be discreet? She certainly didn't want to interrupt some secret rendezvous that the widow had arranged. She slowed down as she passed the truck, wondering who it could be. She shouldn't let her imagination run away with itself, but stranger things had been known to happen. Besides, Miriam was still attractive and looked so much younger than her 75 years. She smiled and continued down the road. She turned into her driveway 400 yards from where the truck was parked. The evening had been quite pleasant and interesting, but she was tired. All she wanted to do was take a long soak in the tub and relax before she tackled the account ledgers. She opened the front door and, stepping inside, turned on the foyer light and then shut and locked the door behind her. Slipping off her coat, she hung it, as she always did, on the antique coat rack by the door. She sat down on the wooden bench that stood next to the coat rack and slipped off her boots. How many times since childhood had she repeated these same familiar steps? Too many to count. She was tired. She needed that soak. She walked in her stocking feet across the polished wooden New England floor and up the steep staircase. He had parked his truck alongside the road, stepped out of the cab, and put on his winter leafy camouflage suit. Under cover of darkness, he had quickly crossed the road and moved through the open field to a large oak tree that stood about 45 feet from her house. He deftly climbed the thick branches of the broad oak until he reached a point that allowed him to see into her bathroom on the second floor. He felt comfortable doing it, having done it dozens of times before. Straddling a large limb, he leaned his back against the trunk of the tree and waited. She was a person of habit, always arriving home each night at the same time, but tonight was different. She was late. He had started to worry that perhaps something had happened to her. He couldn't imagine what. And then a thought came to him. What would she think when she saw his truck? He had always been so careful to arrive after she was home. What was he thinking about? He shouldn't have taken the risk. He should have just left when he realized that her car wasn't in the driveway. There was always next Thursday. Yes, next Thursday, but damn, she was lovely when she bathed by candlelight. As he started to climb down the tree, he saw headlights turn onto Mepham Road. They slowed down as they passed his truck. Shit, I think that's her, he said excitedly, scrambling back up the tree to his perch. He watched as she pulled into the driveway. She got out of the car, hesitated, and then looked across the field in his direction. He froze. For a moment, he wondered if she could have seen him moving in the tree just now. He waited. She closed the door to her car and went into the house. The anticipation was agonizing. He had to control himself. He knew it would be worth it. After all, it seemed like Thursday nights were just as special for her as they were for him. He just had to be patient. 
He slowed his breathing, calming himself, waiting for her. A few minutes later, she entered the bathroom and lit the candles as she did every Thursday night, and then filled the tub. She left, but returned moments later with a robe on. He knew it was silk. She walked over to the window and looked out. He wondered what she was looking for. Was she looking to see if there was anyone out there? He sat perfectly still because she looked directly at him, as if she could see him. He loved it when she did that, because then he knew that everything she did from then on was only for him. She walked to the bathroom door, closed it, took her robe off, hung it on a hook on the back of the door, and turned around. She was completely exposed to him, candlelight softly flickering on her naked body, accentuating her soft curves and her perfect breasts. She walked over to the tub and stepped first with one foot and then the other into the water, revealing a perfect dark patch. Not yet. Not so fast. Damn. She slowly slid down into the tub. Thursday night was the night he liked the best. She raised her shapely legs one after the other out of the tub and used a man's razor on them. And then she held her arms up to use the razor under them, her breasts dripping wet from the water. He could see a drop of water drip from her nipple. God, she's beautiful. She stood up and trimmed the dark patch. He loved the way she placed one leg on the side of the tub, giving him a straight-on view of the dark patch, and used the razor around it. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yes, that's it. She stopped. She looked through the window straight at him. He froze. She can't hear me. She can't see me. It's too dark, and I'm too far away. But he still didn't move. His heart beat faster as she stepped out of the tub and approached the window naked. She stared out, not moving, as if she were looking for someone, listening for something. I'm going to make those nipples of yours so hard. I'm going to roll each one around in my mouth, feel each one against my tongue, perfectly erect, standing at attention. Oh, shit, not now, damn. His head fell back against the tree. He rested there for a moment and then reached in his pocket and pulled out a handkerchief. You never disappoint me, sweetheart. Fuck, I wish I smoked. That would make it perfect. Tim Harvey lay on the asphalt driveway not far from the kitchen door. Rescue workers were crowded around him. Bill Bannister stood off to one side, slack-jawed, as he stared at Tim Harvey's prostrate body and the paramedics working furiously to stop the bleeding. He held a thin notepad in one hand and a small green hand-knit glove in the other. Joe Martin placed his hand on Bill's shoulder and then looked down at Harvey as they placed him onto the stretcher. Bill turned to Joe. They said they don't know if he's going to make it. It's going to be touch and go. He lost a lot of blood, Bill said. There was a puzzled look on his face as he added. He said that his wife did it. This is all I found, Joe. He handed Joe the green glove. Joe turned it over in his hand. On the ribbed cuff of the glove was one embroidered initial, H. Joe placed the glove in a plastic bag and asked, Have you talked to her? Not yet. I wanted to know if he was going to make it first. Who put in the call? Conrad Hampton. Where's Conrad now? Joe asked. He and his wife Lucille are inside with Mrs. Harvey. Look around, Bill. See what you can find. 
I'm going inside to talk with his wife. Uh, Joe? Harvey left a message for me earlier this evening. He said he needed to talk to me. He said it was important. Did he say what it was about? Joe asked. No, he didn't. Well, maybe his wife knows. Joe walked from the kitchen through the dining room and into the living room where Kathy Ann sat in her blood-stained dress on the overstuffed sofa. Tears trickled down her cheeks as she sat in a trance, staring off into space. Mrs. Harvey, could you tell me what happened here? Kathy Ann Harvey lifted her oval face. Her lips were full, her skin was flawless, except for some puffiness and redness on one side of her face. She had a certain air of sophistication. Joe realized how attractive she really was, even now with her blonde hair a mess, her mascara running, and those unusual light blue eyes of hers, red from crying, pulling him in. She nodded her head yes. Joe showed Kathy Ann the plastic bag that contained the glove. Is this yours? Kathy Ann turned the bag over in her hands and shook her head no. I've never seen it before. Are you sure? She looked at him, confusion in her eyes. Yes, I'm sure. She handed the bag back to Joe. He placed the bag in his pocket and said, I want you to take your time, start from the beginning, and tell me what you remember of the events that took place here tonight. She started to tell him her story in words that initially sounded flat and void of emotion, but with each detail, her voice became increasingly distraught. We had just finished dinner, and I was about to cut the cake when we heard the car alarm. Tim went to investigate, and I followed. He left the kitchen door ajar. I heard him call my name. I stepped outside to see what he needed. Someone grabbed me from behind. Whoever it was put a hand over my nose and mouth. I couldn't breathe. He grabbed my hand. I realized that I was still holding the cake knife. He wrapped his hand over my hand. I couldn't let the knife go. He raised my arm. I was struggling to remove his hand from my face so I could breathe, but he was too strong. It all happened so fast. I didn't understand what he was trying to do. Suddenly, I saw myself being pushed toward Tim. Things were getting blurry. I saw my hand, the one with the knife in it, being plunged down towards Tim. I felt a shuddering thud. Oh, God, I'll never forget the feel of that. Her voice was filled with emotion. Tim fell against the car. He turned and looked at me. Then my hand was raised and forced down again. The knife was plunged into his chest. That's the last thing I remember. I must have passed out. She stopped, her body shaking, her lips quivering, tears running down her cheeks. I came to and saw Tim lying there, bleeding. I started screaming, and the next thing I knew, Mr. and Mrs. Hampton were there. She stopped and wiped at her eyes with the back of one hand. Lucille Hampton handed her a tissue. Did you see his face? No, she whispered. Did you see what he was wearing? No, all I saw was his arm, the one that was holding my hand. It looked like, I guess, those clothes that hunters wear. Camouflage? Honestly, Sheriff, I don't know. It could have been. Mrs. Harvey, do you know of anyone who's threatened your husband or argued with him over the last few weeks? He was upset about someone at work. I asked his name, but he never liked to talk about his job. Would you know why he wanted to speak with one of my deputies? Tim? Speak with one of your deputies? No, Sheriff, I wouldn't, she said. 
her eyes still red, a puzzled look on her face. And now, a preview of our next episode. Badly wounded and clinging to life in the local hospital, Tim Harvey answers Joe's questions about the attempt on his life. Does Tim really believe it was his wife, Kathy Ann, who tried to kill him? Did he see the man in the leafy camouflage behind his wife controlling her arm? How will Barry Benoit and Hunter Langtree react when Joe questions them about the attempt on Tim Harvey's life and the bad blood between Tim and Greg Vivian. Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, Exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses. <laughs>